We are in a sermon series this year called The Journey. We are reading through the Bible together. And as we're reading through the Bible, each month um, out of those four different readings, we pick one of those readings and kind of zoom in on that for that month. And this month we are zooming in and calling it the Forge of Perseverance, zooming in on 2 Peter, 1 John. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Peter today. We'll move into 1 John next week. Uh, I actually preached the very first verses in 2 Peter last week. So um, we opened up uh, last week in 2 Peter chapter 1 talking about perseverance. So the idea of Forge of Perseverance is... Now that we're Christians and we are going to be Christians until Jesus comes or we go home to be with him. What is what does perseverance look like? What does it look like for us to continue in the faith? And last week uh, we started in Second Peter chapter one and we're finishing Second Peter today. There's, of course, a lot of good things in between. um, But with the Bible reading plan, we're just going to keep moving to the next section. We'll be in first John next month. Um, But I want to point out something. In Second Peter chapter 1, in case you weren't here last week, and highlight it for you just so that you can make sure, if you didn't see it last week, that you're seeing it this week, it'll, it'll have relevance for, for today. So in Second Peter, if you have a Bible, you can open up there. If you don't have one, just grab one of these white and blue ones underneath uh, towards the end of the book and just keep that Bible. It's all yours. You can have it. Even if you already have one, you can take it home and give it to someone else that doesn't need a Bible. It's the version that I'm preaching out of, the English Standard Version. So um, if you have a Bible, like I said, go to Second Peter. And I want to point out a couple things to you. So last week, as we're talking about sanctification, we're talking about this idea of growing in holiness. What does it mean that now that we're Christians, uh, how does growing in holiness happen? How is it that once we're Christians, we're supposed to become more and more like Jesus? Well, it tells us, if you look in Second Peter 1, it tells us in verse 3 that God has given you everything you need. His divine power has given you, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He who started salvation will actually make you sanctified Whenever Jesus comes, it's going to happen. It says it in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. He will surely do it. So when we're thinking about sanctification, we can say, okay, I'm going to be sanctified. I'm going to grow in holiness and be more like Jesus. But but then God also says in verse 5, this almost seemingly mysterious converse verse in verse 5, where it says, for this reason, make every effort. For this reason is the reason that God's already granted to you. He tells you. You have to make every effort. So while we don't want to relax too far on the idea, well, God's done everything there is, so I don't have to do anything. uh, Peter keeps sanctification balanced the way it should be. And I agree that there's some mystery in how that works out. But he tells us in verse 5, make every effort. He says it again in verse 10. Be all the more diligent. He says it again in verse 15. Make every effort. So this this command or um, this big idea of telling you, you need to make every effort, we realize is absolutely necessary. So that's what we looked at last week, is this idea of what, what is sanctification. He even gives you a little bit of a list there in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 5, to, to supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, uh, brotherly affections. We have kind of a list there. So that's what, that's what it will look like. Now, what I'm going to do today is uh, give you a little bit more practical understanding of what what to do what is sanctification until the moment you get saved until jesus comes or you go home to be with him what is we we understand we're supposed to make every effort we understand that we are believers are not supposed to just kind of sit on the sidelines and let life pass us by in regard to our christian faith and do nothing 
We're supposed to do something. And so today, we're going to get some, some even more kind of practical advice on what that looks like. Um, let me pray, and then we're going to, as I said, jump into 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll be at verse 14. 2 Peter chapter 3 will be at verse 14. Let's pray. Lord, you're so kind and good to us to give us your word. What a gift it is to have your word given to us. We pray that it would not be something we take for granted, but instead we see it as the great gift it is that shows us Christ, shows us the amazing, uh, beautiful gospel, good news that Jesus as Christ has died for us and that we can know him and be saved forever, but also that we can grow in this gospel, that we can understand and rely completely upon the forgiveness that's been supplied for us in Christ for the rest of our lives. That we know that when we come to know Christ, we don't leave the cross and try harder now. Instead, when we come to know Christ in the gospel, we keep believing in that and live as if that's just, this is true. Because it is. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be as gospel-centered as we can in our sanctification. And that you would be with us now as we look at your word. And I pray that you would bring the Holy Spirit down. Speak through me and to us all. So that we can love Christ more deeply. And pursue sanctification more richly in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to read the whole text so we can see it in its full context. It's the, uh, the final words of Peter here. Uh, and then we'll, we'll go through it and you'll, you'll see the different the different things. It says, Therefore, my beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom, wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So in verse 14, it says this, therefore, beloved or believers in Christ, since you are waiting for these. Now, waiting for these. What are the these? If you look up one verse, you'll see what the these are. In verse 13, it says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for, here it is, the new heavens and the new earth. So therefore, since we're waiting for these, the new heavens and the new earth. So we're talking about the second coming. One day, here, Christ has come once, he's going to come again. And so we're, we're waiting for that. We're waiting for that new heavens and new earth, that Christ's second coming for us to finally be there. But in the in-between time, he's going to tell us what we're supposed to do while we're waiting. So while we're waiting, what are we supposed to do? Waiting is difficult for us. I don't feel like I'm naturally wired to wait. Maybe you're different, but whenever I get somewhere, whenever I have to wait, waiting rooms, it doesn't matter whether it's a dentist or a doctor or whatever, I, we, we have to do something, which is a good thing. We're not... We're not necessarily great waiters and so uh while we're here it's the same way while we're waiting we need to be proactively doing something so the title of this sermon is what to do while you're waiting what to do while you're waiting and he's giving us in this particular list as i said we looked at 
chapter 1, this make every effort, make every effort, be all the more diligent. Here's what it looks like. What to actually do while you're waiting. What to do while you're waiting. If you look at verse 14, it's going to be the first one. It's really, really obvious. We could all guess it. Therefore, my beloved, since you're waiting for these, here it is. Be diligent to be found by him without spot, I'm sorry, spot or blemish um, and at peace. So the first thing that we need to do while we're waiting, while Jesus comes back, every Christian, every day, day in, day out, we need to be as proactively as we can to be diligent, to be found by him without spot or blemish. Shorthand, you can just say, pursue holiness, be holy. What's the first thing you're supposed to do while you're waiting? Pursue holiness with every ounce of strength you have. Be all the more diligent to be without spot or without blemish. Now, Peter, as he's writing, certainly is talking to those that might not be Christians, saying, before Christ comes, you need to be in Christ. You need to be a Christian. But we know this also is telling us, for those that are Christians, to be diligent. As a matter of fact, this phrasing here, it says, to be diligent is the exact same phrasing that's used in chapter 1. He wants you to remember chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, make every effort. Or chapter 1, verse 10, where he says, be all the more diligent. Or chapter 1, 15, where it says, make every effort. These are the same phrasings that he's using um, over in chapter 3, where he says, be diligent. Here, make every effort. These are the same things. As a matter of fact, I'll even give you another example where he uses that exact same phrase. Now, the exact same phrase he's going to use here is, is for the opposite. It's pursuing sinfulness, but... This is, he's describing unbelievers in chapter 2. And they're all the more diligence. They're all the more effort to pursue sin. Look what he says. Let's start at chapter 2, verse, chapter two, verse 12. But these, talking about these, these uh, unbelievers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. So he's given us a, um, an amazing description of people that aren't in Christ and how they live. And then it says, suffering wrong as they, here it is, they wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They're, they're waging for their wrongdoing. They're making every effort. They're all the more diligent to try to pursue wrongdoing. And they count it pleasure when they get to do it, to revel in this. They are blots and blemishes, revealing in their deceptions while they feast on you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They, are enti- they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Same phrasing. About being all the more diligent. And the way that chapter 2 describes them. How they have an insatiable desire for sin. It's describing us in chapter 3. That we need to have an insatiable desire for holiness. So be all this. I can't possibly as much as I want to with my English language. um, Put as much strength as I can to in the be diligent phrase. That it says in chapter 3 verse uh, 10. Verse 14 sorry. When we're told to be diligent, this is have an insatiable desire. In the same way that wicked sinners would have for sin, we should have that to be without spot or blemish. Calvin says, but they who cleave to their own filth think nothing. It is certain of God's kingdom and have no taste for anything but of this corrupt world. So all the more... Descriptive then of us is we need to have an insatiable desire for God's kingdom. First John says it this way, describing those who would, 
who would say that they're Christians or say they're not Christians. This is what he says. If we say we have fellowship with Jesus and we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses cleanses us from all sin. So here as we're... As we're seeing, the first thing that you need to do while you're waiting, the first thing is never be okay with sin in your life. Having an insatiable desire to see sin killed in your life. Whatever, and we're all different, whatever temptations of sin come to you, you with every strength and every ounce you have, tell it no. Let, me, let, let Paul give you a description of how he describes the way that he does this. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So we're all believers in Christ. We're all running this race of sanctification. And this is how he says that we should do it. So run that you may obtain it. Obtain sanctification. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. We need to exercise self-control in sanctification. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or a trophy or a medal. But those things will be in a landfill in 100 years. But we're not receiving something that's going to be gone in 100 years. Instead, he says... But we receive an imperishable gift. So I don't run aimlessly so as to box as one beating the air. So I'm not just randomly fighting like this. Imagine an opponent who just, here you are, but you just hit the air instead of them. He says, no, that's not how we fight in sanctification. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. I'm going to take some of you by surprise, but I like the NIV better. In this particular small, small phrase, it says, Nothing against the NIV. I beat my body and I make it my slave. That's how Paul describes his approach to sanctification, to being holy. He literally says, I beat my body and I make it my slave. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I don't want to be the kind of preacher that is running headlong into sin and trying to tell people not to. Instead... I beat my body and I make it my slave because this is what the Lord expects from me until he comes back. So what to do while I'm waiting? The first thing to do while I'm waiting is be holy. So what does that mean then? That means for all of us, TV, shows that you watch or music or movie or uh, music you listen to or your money or your dating or the way you study, all those things, not necessarily bad. They're all good gifts. In moderation, and some things should should be kind of shunned. But all those things that we do, we discipline ourselves into obedience of Christ in the way that we do those things. Whether or not we participate in certain things or the way that we do it. When we study, we don't study half-heartedly. We study as for the Lord. When we date, we don't just date whoever and do whatever. We date as with we would date um, for the Lord. The way we spend our money. It's not just ours to do whatever we want to. All of it's God's. And so we... For example, I've heard a lot of times, you know, I take my tithe and I give it to the Lord. The other's mine. No, it's not yours. All of it's God's. And so in the same way that you you honor God with giving a 10% offering, you honor God with the other 90%. You don't just don't spend it on, you know, snow cones or whatever you want all day. Instead, you honor God with the way you spend that as well. All of it's God's. Um, The TV you watch, the movies you watch, the music you listen to. Everything falls under the lordship of Christ. So what do we do while we're waiting? We pursue holiness. Everything we do in our life should be for the sake of Christ and his gospel. You don't just pursue holiness um, like a summer job. 
I'm going to preach the holiness for a little while, but when that's over, I can do whatever I want for a little while. Then back on, then back off. This isn't how holiness is to be pursued. Jesus isn't just somebody we know while it's convenient. Instead, um, we pursue him with everything that we have. May it never be said that any of us are more committed or more intimately involved with anything like our cell phone than with Jesus Christ. Nothing should be more precious to us than Christ. So the first thing to do while you're waiting is pursue holiness. The next thing you can see is right there in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. So we're waiting on the new heavens and the earth. We're waiting for that second coming. But Jesus isn't coming. He's forbearing. He's patiently not coming. For what purpose? To what end? What's the reason why he hasn't come right now? Not yet. Like he's, he's still not coming. One of it, yes, is pursuing holiness in our own lives. But the other one is this. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. What does that mean, to count it as salvation? Look back to verse 9 in the same text, and you'll, I think we'll, we'll get a good idea. Uh, well, look at 8 and then 9. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. That just means he's outside of time. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The you here is speaking of believers or potential believers. He's, not, he's patient towards all you who are believers or potential believers. There are tons of people that aren't yet believers. And so when we look at verse 15, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. What he's saying is that God is patiently waiting because of the you. Because of those that are believers or that primarily will be believers. And he says, not wishing that any would perish. He doesn't want those that are going to come to know him to perish. Because if he comes back and they haven't come to know him, they go to hell forever. And so he's patiently waiting, waiting for them to come to know Christ so that they won't perish, that all should reach repentance. So when we say in uh, verse 15, count the patience of the Lord as salvation, it means this. It means this. What to do while you're waiting? It means regard the time in which you live right now as a time for salvation. Not for you. For those that are going to come to know Christ. For all of the scores of the elect. Those that are predestined to come to know Christ. However you want to say it. We know that there are people that aren't yet Christians that God wants to be believers. And he is patiently not coming back so that they will come to know Christ. And so, here's the deal. Just, just as practically as I can say this. You, every day, rub shoulders with these people. Every day. You walk around and you know them. They're your neighbors. They're your classmates. They're your roommates. They're your apartment mates, neighbors, whatever you want to call them. They're the people you work with. They're everywhere. They're all over. And you've got to shift your mind to think every moment that Jesus isn't coming back, he's not coming back so that they will come to know Christ. And magically enough, I know them, not magically. It's, it's ordained by the Lord. It's a sovereign thing. And so you've got to reorient your mind to think God is not coming because 
He wants me to, what I'm doing while I'm waiting, tell them about Jesus so that they'll come to know. Paul says this in so many words. Now, here Peter is saying that we need to count this patience of our Lord of salvation. Um, Paul, who wrote Romans and wrote 2 Corinthians, among many other letters, says the exact same kind of thing. This is how Paul says it. In Romans chapter 2, he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? That means the patience of our Lord. Not knowing that God's kindness, that, that forbearance or that patience is meant to lead you to repentance. So God is being patient and coming back for the purpose of you repenting who aren't in Christ. Your neighbors. The reason why he's not coming is so that they'll come to know Christ. Second Corinthians 6 chapter, chapter 6 verse 2. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day for salvation. So his patience is happening right now because now's the day for salvation. This means this. All of chapter 3 is trying to help us understand that the unfolding God plan of God is he's going to come back and it's going to occur on his timetable. But right now, the reason why he hasn't come back is because the people you rub shoulders with need to come to know Jesus. And they need to come to know Jesus because you care so deeply about them that you're going to tell them about Jesus. What do I do while I'm waiting? I pursue holiness, but I also, with everybody I know, tell them about Christ so that they'll come to know Christ. This is what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 through 17 says. I want you to hear this um, through, the, through, the, through the mindset of, if I don't tell them, if I delay, if I tarry, and letting them know about Christ. And he chooses to return. By the way, it's like a thief in the night. We don't know when it's going to come. I mean, that's what it says in, in, in verse 10 in Second Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. When does a thief call you ahead of time and schedule the, uh, the breaking into your house? Never. You don't know. It's imminent. It's any time and you have no idea. This is the exact same way Christ is coming. It's imminent. It's any time and you don't know. And so because of that, those that, are Christ, those that aren't Christians, if we don't tell them, those potential could be Christians, if we don't tell them, when Christ comes, no chance for repentance. The, the clock has run out. There's no overtime. The clock has run out. Hear this, Hebrews chapter 12. It says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, trouble and it may become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral like, or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. And here it is. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. When Christ comes, those that aren't believers will find no chance to repent, even if they seek it with tears. If you know someone that you rub shoulders with day, out, day in, day out, that doesn't know Christ... Let that text properly hit you the way it should. There are people who are perishing. While I'm waiting, I'm supposed to tell them. And if I don't, if Christ comes, which is imminent right now or anytime, there will be no opportunity for them to repent. The coming wrath will be unbearable for them. So what do we do while we're waiting? We tell them. John Piper talking about making the most of this time that we have says this this is insightful 
from the perspective of eternity, we will look back on this brief 2,000 years or so, Christ to wherever we are, whenever Christ comes back, and the relative conditions of human life, from the dark ages to the age of moon landing and wristwatch televisions, those things will seem utterly insignificant in comparison to the all-important distinguishing mark of this period between the first and second comings of Christ, which is this was the time that people could be saved by trusting Christ. The most amazing point or piece or thing about this time we live in is not that you can watch TV on iPads, not that someone will land on Mars one day, but instead that this is the time that they can trust Christ and this is the only time that they can trust Christ. And so what to do while we're waiting is tell them, tell them about Christ. So the first thing is pursue holiness. The second thing is with all those that we rub shoulders with day in, day out. We regard this time as our opportunity for their salvation. And so we don't not tell them. The third thing is interesting. Let me, let me uh, kind of set it up for you. I, I, I said just a second ago in verse 15 when it says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. And I read Paul, Romans 2, 4, and Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. I read those two verses. Um, Peter likely got this phrase, count the patience of our Lord of salvation, from Paul. Second Peter, the book we're looking at right now, was written in A.D. 68. 67, 68. I subscribe 68. You don't have to. <laughs> A.D. 68. Paul wrote Romans in A.D. 57, likely. Wrote 2 Corinthians in A.D. 58. So 10 years before Peter wrote this, Paul wrote the same kind of phrasing of idea. Jesus hasn't come back yet because he wants people to get saved. So in verse 15, you're going to hear Peter kind of allude to this when he says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. Oh, when did he do that? In Romans, you know, 10, 11 years ago and in 2 Corinthians uh, 10 years ago. He wrote those other two letters. Now, 10 years later, Peter, an apostle. We're talking about Peter. Acts 2, preaching at Pentecost, Peter, 3,000 people say Peter. Big dude, important guy. He said, I've read what Paul wrote. And what I think is, not only is that truth that Jesus hasn't come back um, because people get, can get saved. Not only is that truth something that we need to hear. But those letters that Paul wrote, Romans and 2 Corinthians and perhaps others. But we can at least say the letters of Paul. Peter's going to say that those letters are equal in, to, in, in regard to the, them being scripture as the Old Testament. In this particular sentence right here, you're going to hear Peter say, everybody back then in the first century said the Old Testament is scripture. They had this kind of, when they said scripture in Greek, it was graphe. And they had this, this special term graphe. And when they talked about the Old Testament being God's canon, the word of God, they referred to the, 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 the graphe as the Old Testament. And everybody that was Jewish said, that's the word of God from... <clears throat> from um, Genesis to 2 Chronicles. It ends in 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. We have Malachi, but that's neither here nor there. They said, that's the word of God. In this particular sentence, Peter, Peter, not me, not random Joe Schmo. Peter, Acts 2, preaching at Pentecost, Peter. So his, his word carries weight is going to say, when Paul wrote his letters, it's the same as scripture. Look at this. 
and count the patience of our Lord, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote according to his, the wisdom given him. Okay? So when Paul wrote, he was given wisdom by God, obviously, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. So Peter broadens it out to say, there's a lot of letters of Paul circulating. Now, we need to realize the, the New Testament canon was established around the year 320-ish or something like that. In the year 68, 68, almost 250 years beforehand, Peter is going to say Paul's letters are part of that canon, part of scripture graphe. He says this, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Thank you for saying that, Peter. I mean, if Peter can say that and I can't understand, I feel a lot better. But that's just, we'll come back to that. Which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction. Well, that still happens. People twist scripture all the time and it's to their own destruction. Thank you for clearing that up too. And look at this. As they do the other scriptures. Did he just call Paul's writing scriptures? I think so. He's comparing Paul's writing. This is huge. For those of you that are really serious about apologetics, I'm not good at apologetics. I, you know, I'm just enough to be dangerous maybe, but I don't really study it too much. But this is a pretty big deal. This is a huge deal. The Old Testament, everybody agrees with scripture. Here, Peter, Peter is saying Paul's writings are scriptures. Wow, we can start broadening out now and start getting a good idea of what the word of the Lord is. Not just the Old Testament, but New Testament now. So this is a big deal here. So now that we've kind of cleared all that up, the whole point here is this. There's some things that we need to know about Scripture. Number one, um, it's hard to understand Scripture. So as you're reading the Bible, take heart. Peter thinks Paul's hard to understand. So when, you, when you're wading through Romans and you're just like, Paul, man, I don't get what you're saying. Peter did the same thing. He's like, Paul, man, I need for you to come over and explain this to me. And don't rebuke me like in Galatians. Anyway, so like you have this idea where Peter thinks they're hard to understand. We have another thing that happens where those that are unbelievers, those that don't love the scriptures, they'll take those things and they'll twist them. But the twisting actually brings about their own destruction. That's what it says. The, the ignorant, unstable twist to their own destruction. But there's another thing also about scripture being hard to understand and why I think it's hard to understand is this. We don't train ourselves very well to think on deep, hard things. We don't train ourselves in regard to scripture. So what to do while we're waiting? I'm going to come back to train ourselves. What to do while we're waiting? First, we pursue holiness with everything we have. Second, we regard this time in which we live as a time where we absolutely have to see people come to know Christ. The third one is this. You need to stick to the scriptures. You need to find your life and body and your mind and your heart and your soul applied so stuck to the scriptures that you never leave the bible it is our lifeline when you get into heaven and you're in the new heavens and the new earth when you're with jesus you won't need to say i need to do my quiet time today so i can be with jesus there's jesus i mean he's there <laughs> we don't have to bring our bibles and say oh, i need to be with jesus today we'll, we'll be with him but now in the while we're waiting period we don't need to thumb through the magazines of the waiting waiting place our, our magazine or our book if you will is the bible and what he's telling us is stick to the scriptures as much as we can third thing what to do while you're waiting follow the scriptures in order or so that you prevent and avoid your destruction now let's talk about why we don't do this why we don't train ourselves very well there's a book um, written on preaching about preaching by John Stott. John Stott wrote this back in 1982 and it's called Between Two Worlds. And basically what he says is when the preacher stands 
in the pulpit. This is really just a music stand, but we'll pretend it's a pulpit. When he stands in the pulpit uh, or the music stand, he stands between two worlds. There's, there's the, the world where he is, the earthly realm, and the heavenly realm. And he stands in between both of these, taking the truths of the scripture and trying to deliver them to those who are here. And those who are here trying to draw them with his words from the Bible, Holy Spirit given, draw them into the heavenly realm. So he stands week in, week out. So this is not a small thing to do. This is, in the mind of a preacher, it should be a huge thing to stand in between two worlds and beckon people to come to know Christ, but also, by God's grace, obediently and truthfully deliver God's word. Truthfully is a lot of weight. You want everything you say to be truth and not false. So you stand in between two worlds and has these writing about this this process or this delivery. And you need, to, you need to listen to the Bible in this modern day context. And why it's not just difficult to understand, but we don't train ourselves to do it. This is what he says. Link the exposure. Now, he's going to get on television here. I'm not anti-television. I know that we have them. You're not going to get rid of it. But this is what he says. Just be careful about it. He says, link the exposure to television. This is written in 82. So let's just say media. Like, they didn't have YouTube then. Um, so, so, you weren't, you know, posting cat videos and watching those all day. So, let's just, you know, whatever it is you, you do, too much in regard to media. Lengthy exposure to media tends to produce physical laziness, intellectual flabbiness. Just picture your mind having a big spare tire around it because it doesn't exercise. It, lengthy exposure to television produces physical laziness, intellectual flabbiness, Emotional exhaustion, psychological confusion, and moral disorientation. That means you have trouble discerning the, between right and wrong. Because TV doesn't do that for you. You're like, I really want these robbers to rob the bank because I like the leader. Wait a second. I'm cheering for people to rob. What am I? I'm morally disoriented right now. There's movies that do that. So there's TV shows that do that. So I'll read it again. Lengthy exposure to these kinds of things in media. This is why we don't train ourselves well. To stick to the scriptures. They tend to produce physical laziness. We're, we're lethargic. We're sedentary. Intellectual flabbiness. We don't think deeply. Emotional exhaustion. We don't have time to think deeply. Psychological confusion. Our minds aren't, aren't, aren't prepared. And moral disorientation. We, we have trouble now discerning between the right and wrong. What this means for us preachers. Or for those that are any going to be in the word. Is... That we must improve our ability now to communicate effectively and hold people's attention. With no antics, no stringed orchestras, no violence, and no sex. That's the way the media does it, but we can't do those things. But it does not mean that we can abandon our calling to continually to preach the whole counsel of the word. And this is what he says. And therefore it should be expected. It should be expected. It's my expectation and this is my expectation for all of you. Because of media and all of our lives, it should be expecting that preaching will sometimes be for you the most demanding thing that you're going to hear all week. Because we just, we live in a world where we don't train ourselves to stick close to the scriptures. And when we think it's hard, we live in a world where we say, like, like Peter, this is hard to understand. I'm going to figure it out. We say it's hard to understand. Can you explain this to me? I don't understand it, which is not a bad thing. Not a bad thing to ask, but sometimes we don't want to go through those rigorous exercises of sticking to the scripture and figuring it out. What to do while we're waiting, be holy, count this time of salvation, but your walk with Jesus 
is absolutely dependent on sticking to the scriptures. You've got to, as I said, follow the scriptures in order to prevent or avoid your destruction. Now, I know that your destruction has been avoided because you put your faith in Christ. You avoid destruction or death and hell forever because you put your faith in Jesus. We're talking about now that you are a Christian. You avoid destruction by sticking close to Jesus in the scriptures. We want to be men and women of the scriptures. Let me read to you, and I've read this so many times. Let me read to you again what the Bible says it does for you. This is why it's so important. Hebrews 4. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For, it is the word of God is living and active. Harry Potter is not a lot. It's not a book that has life. Or whatever your novel is or whatever your book is. Or even Knowing God by Jay Packer. Desiring God by John Piper. Or Max Lucado. I don't know what you read. Those books don't have life. But this particular book, it's literally living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword piercing through the division of soul and of spirit and joints and marrow and discerning, look, listen to what the Bible does, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It cuts through your outward actions and knows exactly what your heart is, is, is desiring. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. So this word does amazing things. Look, listen to what it does. All scripture, all graphe is theonoustos, breathed out by God. God breathed and it's profitable. What does the Bible do for us? It's profitable for teaching. Why do you stick close to the scriptures? Because you can't be taught anywhere else besides it. It's profitable for reproof. We all need a spiritual kick in the pants every once in a while. It's going to give it to you. It's profitable for correction and putting you on the correct path. Don't walk down this path anymore. Walk down this path now. The Bible will point you to that path. You'll just, I will, I'll just meander around the forest. Where's the path? I don't know. But the Bible points me down that path. It also says that it does this. It trains us for righteousness. It trains us for righteousness. So that the man or woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Well then, why would we not... Follow the scriptures closely. What do you do while you're waiting? You take this living and active book and you read it and you never walk away from it. That's what we do. We're absolutely dependent upon this. We put it over it, us, and we live underneath its authority. We don't put it under us and say that we're the authority. It's the authority over us. This is what, um, this is what John Wesley says on the scriptures. Just hear this man's deep love for the Bible. This is what he says. I am a spirit come from God and I am returning to God. I'm just hovering over a great gulf till a few moments hence and then I'm no more seen. I'll be in heaven. I drop into an unta- I will one day drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. He hath written down that way in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. This is the overall mindset that we all should have as believers in Christ. Having a deep, deep love for this book and sticking to it as closely as we possibly can. What do we do while we're waiting? Pursue holiness. Count this days as days that we can tell people about Christ. Stick to the scriptures. The fourth one is is this. 
The fourth one is this. Look at verse uh, 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that people are going to twist the scriptures, take care that you're not carried away with those people into the errors of lawlessness and lose your own stability. You, you don't want to lose stability. You don't want to, you want to avoid destruction. But here's what you should do. Avoid destruction. Avoid error. Guard yourself from that. And here it says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, you can go ahead and put up number four. Here's the, maybe sorry, up there. Yeah. Here's the fourth thing that we do while we're waiting. We guard ourselves from error and destruction by growing in the knowledge, grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. This is the prescription of Christ given to you in the way that you are to live your life. We, we don't get to choose whether we want to grow in grace and knowledge. I, I want to make sure we're clear here. These, this phrase, grow in the grace and knowledge, is a command. It's a command given to you in the Bible. This is a New Testament command of God. You need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I got pushed back after first service, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with it anyway. I want to tell you a story. Um, I have figured out how to overcome at Chick-fil-A the my pleasure they give you. I, you know what I'm talking about. Whenever you take your drink, you hand them your drink, they get your drink, they bring it back to you. You say, thanks. They say, my pleasure. And you hear the my pleasure. And I've got, I'm, it's 50-50 from what, I, but people tell me, okay, I don't like it. And some people say, yeah, I've never even thought about it. But whenever I was talking about it in, in first service, whenever I said, when people say, by handing you a cup, here's a cup of soda, my pleasure. I hear that like, okay, that's a little weird. That, that's a little weird. <laughs> and so I... And my weird, twisted mind thought to myself, I don't want to hear them my pleasure anymore. I know that's wrong. You can say, I just would rather them say you're welcome. I am equally as feeling loved and served by saying you're welcome. The normal thing that people would say whenever they hand you a cup of soda. Instead of my pleasure, they say, you're welcome. And I'm, I'm fine. But I, I, I wanted to try to overcome the my pleasure. How can I beat the MP? This is what I thought. Um, they, I hand them a soda, they hand it back to me, and I just do this. Don't say because if I don't say thank you, they won't say my pleasure. They'll just think I'm rude. But anyway, I didn't get to my pleasure. So, but that's bothered me. It's bothered me for a while because as a Christ follower, I don't want to be. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to be rude. And so I'm, I'm racking my brain. This is ridiculous. I know I'm racking my brain. How can I avoid the my pleasure but not come off rude? Because I, I must. You should know I frequent Chick Fil A quite a lot. It's quite good. So anyway, here's this past Thursday. A revelation from the Lord hit me. A little bit extreme. But here's what happens. This, this is the way you can do it. This is what I do. You hand them the cup. They give it back to you. You get them. And you start drinking the soda. And not in a sarcastic manner, but in a very like thank you oriented way. You go. And then you walk away. You give them the thumbs up. They won't say. They're so, they're so like taken back. They won't say my pleasure. And it's not like a. It's like a real like kind of thing. If you do that. You have overcome the, the my pleasure at Chick-fil-A. Some of you are wondering, why in the world is he telling me that? And what in the world does it have to do with Jesus? I'm going to tell you. I actually have a point. I didn't just randomly throw that. But listen, I know half of y'all think it, you're all with me. I know the other half of you think, what? That's not a big deal. But some of you are. Let, let's, let's think about this for a second. Instead of being all in with Chick-fil-A, with, with me, 
And, and all in on the My Pleasure experience, because it's their restaurant, I'm supposed to just go with it and, and not try to work my own system and get around it. I've created for me, in the Chick-fil-A experience, and orchestrated, I've bent Chick-fil-A to my convenience, and I, it's the way I want them to be. This is how I want Chick-fil-A to be, and I'm going to work it, and I'm going to bend it. Oh no, you know where I'm going, this is exactly where I'm going. This is exactly what I think, we've, we've been Christians in North America... For so long, we figured out the system. We know that we can, we can get in there. And what we've done is we figured out how to orchestrate and bend the North American Christian experience to us to fit our convenience in the way that we want Jesus to be for us. And perhaps we've long forgot this, that we are continually to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus not just adapt our behavior to Christianity or bend Jesus to our purposes, but we're supposed to be bent to his purposes. He bends us, we don't bend him. And he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We don't get to do whatever we want because as it's Chick-fil-A's restaurant, we're supposed to just be all in on the Chick-fil-A experience. It's his salvation. And he says, never stop growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I'm supposed to be all in on what he's prescribed to me. Not trying to bend him and orchestrate him and make, make it be the way I want. But instead, Jesus bends me and says, this is what you're supposed to do. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You don't orchestrate this. You don't bend this. You don't change this. And it's so easy to do in the North American Christian experience. But you don't, if you're all in with me, you're all in with me. And I'm telling you, grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what happens, especially at Remedy. We are really good at growing in the knowledge of Jesus. We're pretty good at it. There's a lot of people that like verse by verse preaching through books of the Bible, 40, 50, longer sermons than normal. Because we like growing in the knowledge. But we also need to grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. We don't get to bend Jesus to us. Now that we're believers. He bends us to him. Paul says it a different way. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish things. When I'm all in with Jesus, I don't run the show. He runs the show. What do I do while I'm waiting? I, in this particular time, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Now, this isn't exactly the exact same as sticking to the scriptures. Although, certainly, there are some, some things that are similar. But here we're talking about, not just growing in knowledge, but growing in grace. This is difficult. Maybe you won't understand this concept, but I'm going to explain it to you. Growing in grace. One commentator this week said this. Grace, I want to make sure I say it right. Grace is the greatest unused resource in all the world. It's not the oil underneath our dirt or whatever it is. It's not the energy, the boundless energy of wind power or whatever. (laughs) The, The most unused resource in all the world is grace the reason why is god will never run out of it to extend it to you who are brokenhearted for your sin we want to grow in the grace of jesus so what does that mean it means pride is done you don't 
act like you got it all together anymore. There's no reason to. You don't pretend like everything's just fine. There's no reason to. Because when you come to the Lord and let him know that you have nothing together, floods of grace. Let me read a quote to you from John Piper on grace. This, this is going to give us a little bit more understanding of what it means to grow in grace. What do we do while we're waiting? We grow in grace. Listen, it is the wealth of God's kindness. Grace is the wealth of God's kindness. It is the riches of his mercy. It is the soothing ointment of his forgiveness. It is the free and undeserved but lavishly offered hope of eternal life. Grace is what we crave when we're guilt laden. Think about these times where you're just so plagued with guilt about your sin. What is it that you crave? More sin? No. Forgiveness. How do we forgive him? Because God gives us grace. He looks past the sin because he put it on Christ and we get grace. Grace is what we must have when we come to die. Grace is the only ray of hope when the future darkens over the storm clouds of fear. So growing in grace is this. Just being willing to say, I don't have it all together. I'm going to stop pretending, God, like I have it all together. This thing right here that I know is sinful, I'm not trying to cover it up that you don't see it. Instead, I'm opening it up and I'm saying, God, breathe the soothing ointment of your grace on this and cover it. And while we're at it, I've got about, I don't know, a hundred of these things where I don't have to pretend to have it all together anymore because the gospel saves me and shows me that you're bigger and more powerful than my sin. And the gospel also shows me that while I'm walking through this life in sanctification, the utter need I have for the gospel to be saved and not go to hell is the utter need I have for the gospel now for you to continually bring the soothing ointment of grace and make me stop trying to fake it and act like I have it all together. Grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's difficult. Maybe, maybe you'll understand this. Maybe you'll say, okay, I can get that. I can be the biggest faker in the world and no one know. Act like I got it all together. That's not growing in grace. The best thing for all of us is to stop that and say, Lord, these are the multiple places that I need for you to come and give me the wealth of your kindness, the riches of your mercy, the soothing ointment of forgiveness, the free undeserved but lavishly offered hope of grace. I crave it right now. It's what I must have right now. It's the only ray of hope that I'll have right now that these storm clouds are here. What do we do? We grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We continually advance in the gospel by saying daily progress is mine and only mine because of Christ and his grace that he gives to us. Grace is the end and knowledge is the means. The knowledge of God leads you to a deeper understanding of experiencing that grace. We grow in the grace of knowledge. Knowledge is only the, end, is only the means. It's not the end. It gets you to the experience of grace. Now, I know that some of your subjective alarm bells are ringing, and I agree. But it's both. Here's the last one. So, what do we do while we're waiting? Pursue holiness. Regard this time of salvation. We stick to the scriptures. We grow in the grace of Christ. And here's the last one. We remember that the great goal of God in our life is that Jesus Christ would be glorified. You remember that the great goal of your life is not that you would make a ton of money, not that you would be awesome at basketball, not that you would 
be the best, I don't know, PlayStation warrior, whatever those games are. The great goal of God in your life is not that you would win every fantasy football league. The ones that don't cost money, of course. The, the, the great goal of God is that your life would be forever, forever pointed towards and directed towards one thing. The glory of Jesus Christ in my life. But we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior. Here it is. To him be the glory. Notice how expansive he wants the time period to be. Both now, 68 AD, to the day of eternity. To whenever that happens. That seems pretty expansive. Peter's wanting to make sure we understand all of the possibilities of time that you can think of. He wants us to be glorified. He wants Christ to be glorified through us, both now and for eternity. His kingdom forever known, receiving all the glory. Everything that's going on in all of our world is designated, is set aside, is appointed to the glory of God. There isn't anything whose ultimate end is not Jesus being glorified. Everything is for that purpose. This means this. If you just want to brass tacks the fifth thing that you do while you're waiting, worship, worship, wor- I should say Jesus, worship Jesus, worship Jesus, worship Jesus, worship Jesus. In here, when we're singing together corporately, worship Jesus through song. When you leave, worship Jesus through the way you interact with your neighbors. Worship Jesus through the way you read your Bible. Worship Jesus through the way you work hard as a, someone who's been given uh, an ability to be a part of the creation and make things. Worship Jesus as you talk with your neighbors. Worship. Your whole life is designed to give Jesus glory. So we go into this time of reflection here, this time where we have an extended time of music. We don't do it in the beginning. We do it in the end. We believe in revelation response. God's revealed himself to his word in his word. Now we respond. Not that the other way is wrong. This is how we do it at Remedy. We respond after we hear from the word. And perhaps one of these things is things that you know you need to grow in. You know that you're in the waiting period. And you need to grow in holiness. It's not, a, it's not an important thing to you. You know you need to grow in holiness. Or you need, you need to grow in regarding this day as the day of salvation. People around you that you rub shoulders with need to hear the gospel. And they might perish and never have a chance for repentance. And you don't tell them. Or you need to grow in your walk in the scriptures. You don't stick close to the scriptures. Or you need to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Just become an open book with God with how much you need his grace. Wherever the Lord's leading, I just say be obedient during this. And as we worship together through song, worship. Give Jesus the glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time where we have been able to come together as a church, hear from your word, and now respond and worship through song. We ask that you would come now and draw all of our hearts, not just to words on a screen, but instead our hearts to Jesus Christ. And that would give you the glory. We love you and we praise in Jesus' name.